Here we go. You're tuning in to Will Love Listen. Now listen. Hey, it's Darren Hayes. Hi, Darren. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. This is Will. Hey, Will. How are you? Great, great. I appreciate you taking the time out for me. I've been reading about this new album, and I've been a fan of you for years, um, since the Savage Garden days. So I've been looking forward to this. Oh, Will, I think I might have seen your um, Facebook post, and I might have shown my husband, and I was so thrilled. And I actually just said, because I've been having these moments where I just really take a second to feel grateful, and it made me feel so grateful. Like I was just very touched and I'm just like, I just said, look how lucky I am that someone even said that about me. So for real. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. That means a lot to me. So thank you. Hey, do you mind if I put you on speakerphone? Uh, no, that's fine. Hang one sec. Okay. I'm doing a thing where I'm, um, I'm on Instagram because I've been streaming and doing interviews and stuff today with fans watching so if you're okay with that i'm okay with that but um yeah totally yeah no that's that's fine by me feel free to like tag me um and everything my instagram handle is at it's at will love inc so three l's total will love inc okay you are the best yeah will love inc like incorporated Oh, at Will Love Inc. Yes, exactly. I should have said that. <laughs> okay. Well, let me just tell, I was just saying to folks that um, Will had, uh, you had tagged me today in like a post just saying you were excited to talk to me. And I was saying that I've been taking the time in my life in general to just be really grateful. And that just, I just thought that was so sweet. And also, you have really cool hair. So let's just start it off there. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I do. I'm self-conscious about my hair. I've always been changing it over the years. So thank you for that. Not at all. Let's let's chat. Anyway, do you have long hair now? Is it still long? No, it's uh, it's shorter now. Um, yeah. So I think the most recent picture that I have is probably the one of me with Melissa Etheridge on my Instagram page. So it's a lot shorter now. Oh, I'll check it out. Okay. Oh, I love her. Great. Okay. Oh, she was she was such a ball. I interviewed her this summer. She was, and then I met her backstage after one of the shows. She was fun. She's fun. Great. Now, first off, I have to say congratulations on the new album, appropriately titled Homosexual. <laughs> now, this is your... Thank you. Oh, definitely. You're welcome. This is your first album in 11 years since 2011's Secret Codes and Battleships. It also is your fifth studio album. So it's been a long time coming. I know. I de- are you aware of this? Because I, I didn't really make a big deal of it, but I... Even I didn't think I was going to make music again. So the really? fact that this exists, yes. So the fact that this exists is, uh, it's really special and significant for me because I'm back now and I, I am can't imagine not making music anymore. But in 2012, I just, you know, I. It's funny with hindsight now. I understand why I felt that way. I think that there was, the music industry was just pre-Spotify or it's just begun. Um, But, you know, it was me exhausted after really never stopping. You know, I think the the Savage Garden experience was so (sighs) traumatic in that the band ended really without my 
well, it ended without my say. It ended and I just had to continue on because I never conceived of not, of not doing this anymore. So I, I, I started a solo career really on the back foot and with so much pressure uh, from a major record company and there was so much control and so much expectation. And then after that first solo record, so much disappointment from them, you know, yeah. and and then all of that, you know, sort of surreptitious and sort of like secretive, indirect uh, controlling of my image and the whispers and all of that stuff about me being too gay or not too gay, never really told to my face, but that sort of feeling of being erased and whatever. And so I was always feeling like um, I had disappointed someone or something and yet I had to had this forward momentum that I had to continue on. And though I graduated from it and I really leaned into being independent and being artistic and thank goodness I had the UK and I I had this mighty smaller but really mighty and fierce loyal fan base um, that sustained me. It was exhausting. It really was exhausting and, and felt like every time I released a record, it was harder and harder to do things in that old system, which was, you know, dictated by whether or not I could get a song played on the radio. Yeah. Um, you know, all of that stuff. And um, so to, to be here now feels like a miracle. It really does. Wow, I'm so glad. And I'm just so glad the industry has changed because I feel like for so long it was like corporate re re uh, executives were controlling everything. So artistic expression everything. was probably very limited or you probably felt as though it was. It did. And it wasn't that it affected my art because it never did, but it affected how my art was promoted. Yeah. That's what was really hard, you know, because I would be in situations where, for example probably the best reviewed album of my career and a, a huge fan favorite is an album called The Tension and the Spark. Well, the US record company certainly didn't stop any of the creative process of that, but they just put it on a shelf and never released it, hmm. you know, and then ultimately dropped me from the label. So that's how they dealt with artistic freedom and expression. It was... <sighs> It, it was bullying. You yeah. Know? It was very much like, fine, you want to do that? Okay. Well, we're just going to bury you. And to be in this situation where I have controlled, I have control over every single aspect of my career, every photograph, every outfit, every vase on the table in the music video, every boy that I get to kiss in the video. You know, that has the title so liberating. of right? It's it's beautiful, and um, so it feels like I already know that this album is successful. My definition of success is: is it real? Is it true? Do I love it? Yes. So it's a success. That's it. That's all I care about. And that's what matters at the end of the day, because so many artists mm -hmm. create music, and although it may do well they're not happy behind the scenes. 
Yeah, and let's let's be honest about that. Like, I care deeply about my mental health. And then when I look at artists like Britney, who I just have so much sympathy for, I'm watching Britney every day express her anger. Yeah. You know, her anger. She's still so angry, and I understand about this. I'm angry at the things that were done to me. You know, I'll give you one example. Um, the music video for I Want You, Savage Garden. It's a fantastic video directed by Nigel Dick. Nigel had directed all of those Backstreet Boys videos, most of Britney Spears' videos. When we first went to, uh, I'll just call them the record company, um, that we had uh, an Australian music video that cost about a dollar. And, uh, of course, the first thing the big record company in America did was they said, we have to get Nigel Dick to, to direct your music video for you. And if you watch that music video, I am in uh, uh, a contraption. My face for most of that video is I'm in, I'm in a, a head brace. My, my face and chin is in like a, a neck uh, strap, which as it turns out was some sort of uh, optometrist's um, device, right? <laughs> now the art department back then, did an amazing job and on paper it was described to me as this wonderful sci-fi thing and if you look at the music video you know daniel jones my partner is just jumping around free on a guitar and he gets to just be this free thing and i'm sort of caged like some exotic animal i only found out maybe two months ago from an ex-manager that the reason that was done was because the label had serious concerns about what I looked like when I moved. Wow. Too oh. feminine. Oh, my God. I mean, like, the whole way it was set up was sort of symbolic in itself um, with you being the one that wasn't free and sort of, like, entrapped. But then just to hear that after the fact, it has to be sort of almost like a gut punch. Did you ever perceive? Did you ever think that though? After the fact that maybe they were trying to do that deliberately to sort of like control you? No, I had no idea at the time. That's what's so upsetting to me. That's why I relate to Britney's anger because the things that I knew about came later. The things that I that were overt were in my solo career when I made the music video for Insatiable. That's when I thought, oh, I'm I'm in control. I can control my um, my image more i felt more comfortable in my sexuality i was fully out in my private world the the record company knew that i was out and for years i'd been singing lyrics you know that the affirmation record was an album about my divorce from my wife and as it turned out the divorce within the band uh you know the the, the musical divorce um i was singing lyrics like i believe you you can't control or choose your sexuality i was on the jay leno show i'm winking at the camera when i sing that line i'm i'm preparing to come out yeah you know, to the world and then when I did Insatiable, that song's about a man, you know, want to, you know, take, turn the lights down low, you know, um, take your clothes off, you know, I want to taste every drop. I mean, you don't have to be Einstein to work out <laughs> what I'm singing about here. And um, so I, you know, we did the music video treatment and I told them, I, you know, I absolutely did not want them putting me in a situation with a woman because I felt that that was a lie to my audience. And what they did was they secretly filmed footage of a woman without my permission, a woman in a trench coat who had nothing on underneath. And I had worked with a choreographer for a month and I was doing this 
uh, Latin dance, this tango, and I was in this beautiful um, sort of leather, uh, really tight outfit, very similar to a lot of the styling and everything that I wear in the dance sequence for um, Let's Try Being In Love when I'm on stage in sequence and stuff. My hair looked exactly the same, and I'm wearing, symbolically, I wear the same belt that I was wearing in the first Insatiable video. Okay. Wow. And the record company officially told us that uh, they just felt that the video didn't work. But my spies at the label had told me that they hated my dancing because they felt I looked too feminine, right? Well, years later, it turned out that actually it was because I looked too gay. Oh, man. What what they did to me was they cut together this video where they had inserted this woman searching for me and what they made the video look like was that I'm walking through a club looking for a woman and the woman's looking for me. And I was so violated. I was like, why why would you do this to me? You're you're making this video look like I'm trying to be with this woman and it was it was just so strange to me. And uh, so that video was scrapped. It cost a million dollars. I can't believe that. And I had to pay that. for wow. it. That, that went on my tab. And then they shot another video for me where they made me ghost Darren. <laughs> where <laughs> they, sh- they shoot this love story where they just make me watch like a cuck. <laughs> and I'm just this. And the, the president of the label made me straighten my hair. Wow. He said my hair looked too feminine, so there was a mandate in the company that where I had straightened hair. Now, look, I'm not proud of this either. By the time that that, that solo album ends, by the end of the, the process, yeah, I made a video with Rose Byrne, the actress Rose Byrne, where I am in her arms, and she is my girlfriend, and I've just given up all control over that, you know. And that's not the record company making me do that. That's me just... Just kind of giving up. Yeah, because you were pr- at that me. point, you were probably just like exhausted and just like I was. You didn't want to fight it. Yeah, I, I was, and, and, and it's funny because it was my friend who directed that video, and we were just excited that we had Rose Byrne, you know, available. And by that point, I was just like so exhausted, and the record was really just not being promoted at all, and. You know, I was, in the end, I take responsibility for that. I was complicit in, yeah, I was contributing to this heteronormative thing of just whatever, but in my defense, I would say that my self-esteem had been so pummeled. The message that I'd been given was that who I was was repulsive. Yeah, that's... You know? And it's damaging, too, to come out from that. Because it probably stays with you for a while and then you start becoming self-conscious and then second-guess, like, every decision you make. You do. And, and then you can't... You don't know who you can be in a video. Like, uh, can you be romantic? Can you not? Can you... Do you come out? Do you not? What a lot of people didn't realize during that period was um, I was still questioning my sexuality. Um, I, on tour... Oh, my gosh. It was crazy. Um, well, during that <clears throat> period... I wanted to ask you, you know, about that because I was reading, yeah. you know, like I've been a fan of you and I, I, I'm familiar with your story. So I was eager to ask you about that because I know you were married to like your childhood sweetheart from like 94 to 2000. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before you even 
um, rose to fame in Savage Garden. And then, yeah. and then you divorced like after the fact. So at what point did you realize you were gay and how difficult was it to come out in like the early 2000s? Like, really hard. I mean, like, did you hold back it, because you got so much fame with Savage Garden? No, I held back for my mental health and it's really hard to, uh, it's really hard to explain, but I think now we have a much more understanding view of sexuality where, where people sort of understand it's, it's just not as black and white. It just wasn't binary for me. Now I fully identify as being gay, but back then I think because I was married to a woman, um, it was very confusing for people and it was confusing for me too, because I think people thought, well, does that mean that must mean you're bisexual, and it wasn't. The, the easiest way I can describe this without co-opting um, um, a, an identity disorder because I, I don't have one. But bear with me here. I'll try to explain this in the best way I can. I grew up being very good at hiding secrets okay. because I had uh, my earliest memories are pre-verbal, so before the age of three, they are violent memories of watching my father physically abuse my mother. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. That's okay. Thank you. But so my father and his abuse of my mother are some of my earliest memories. And then by the time that I could speak... um. I learned that this was a shameful thing. And remember that word, so that word's really important here. So it's the 1970s and my mother could not go to anybody for help. There was no social benefits for women to leave men because of domestic abuse. Um, the way that marriage laws existed, um, there was no easy way to survive as a single mother so and then there was also this stigma whether it was real or imagined but she was deeply deeply embarrassed by the fact that she was a victim of abuse and sadly anyone who's ever suffered any kind of abuse understands this it's the victims who end up protecting the perpetrator yes because the victims keep the secret and so we grew up absolutely terrified that anyone in the neighborhood would ever know what happened behind closed doors. So that was happening while my sexuality was emerging. And, you know, my father was the first person to ever call me the F word. Children at school wow. would call me homosexual, which is why, you know, that word homosexual is so stinging for me, which is why emancipating myself from it, reclaiming it, replacing my associations with that word with joyful memories are important to me. But, you know, having any inclination that I might like boys, was it was very easy for me to take that feeling and park it in a place which was a secret place. And because I never acted on it, by the time um, I got to an age where I could have intimate connections with people, then I thought that that's what love was. 
And I don't want to take anything away from the women that I had relationships with because they were real. They were as fully formed as I possibly could have relationships with. And yeah, they were sexual and they were, they were just everything I thought relationships were. I just thought that my attraction to men were something to be ashamed of and something I could never tell anybody. Not even, nobody. I could tell nobody. And I remember when AIDS first became something, I was so naive about sex and so naive about how um, you even contracted the virus that I thought that I could contract HIV just by thinking about boys. Wow, that's traumatizing. Yeah. Very. So I remember going to the doctors as a child thinking I have swollen glands because they were one of the symptoms of, uh, that, 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 that's what the information was about HIV. They would say, if you have swollen glands, that's one of the symptoms. So of course I, I incessantly checked my glands to, in, until they became swollen. <laughs> and uh, then I, I begged my mother to take me to the doctor But what was really happening was I was trying to unburden myself of this guilt. I would pray every night to God, please don't make me gay because I didn't want to die. Yeah. You know, so that's where I was coming from. So by the point, by the time I'm in college and I have my first girlfriend and then I get to tell this, the first person I ever told, you know, about what was going on in my home is the first person that I lose my virginity to. And then it's all wrapped up in intimacy and secrecy. And and it's just so complicated for me. So then um, I, uh, I, I've only ever had two relationships with women. My first relationship was in high school and into college that breaks up. I am devastated. And then I meet Colby and she's my best friend and really, we are Will and Grace. <laughs> yeah, I could picture that. That's that you mentioned it. You get it. Yeah. You know, we're Will and Grace, and then she's there with me throughout, you know, meeting Daniel and that whole period, and I just can't think of any other way of, you know, I've come from this abusive childhood. All I want is a family. All I want is stability. The idea of being gay, I don't have any role models. I can't. I, I don't think I know anyone gay. Of course, we all do, but I don't think I do. So that's what happens. And so by the time um, I am out in the public eye, I then start meeting people who are gay and that's when all the colour starts to drain from my world. And I depict that in that music video for Let's Try Being In Love. That's what I'm depicting is, is our marriage and my relationship of like, men start to come into my world where I'm feeling that attraction to men and I'm imagining a world with men and imagining sex with men and then my innocent world is destroyed and I have to, this future life that I've imagined, which is just going to be marriage, babies, white picket fences, a happy life that I'd never had as a child, Yeah, I, I have to be the, des- the destroyer of that. In order to free myself, I have to destroy a life. Um, so it was. I was depressed, and a lot of the time when I was in the public eye, even after our divorce, I was um, I was suicidal. 
and that's that's the sad truth is that I was I was I was suicidal for a lot of that time because I didn't get to be happy about being gay. I felt still guilty. I still felt like this was something that was a curse. It was something that was um, uh, it, it had never brought me any joy. Uh, all it was at that point was just a physical urge, and um, of course. I don't feel like that now. I've been married for 17 years. (laughs) Believe me, I eventually got to have lots of wonderful relationships and I got to have joyful sex and love men and all that stuff. But at the very beginning, it was horrific. So, yeah. That that is like such an interesting story. You really have a story to tell because it sounds like the entire time you were like winning awards and topping the charts, you were also like suicidal because... You knew, I was hating myself. Yeah, and you know what would come along with coming out. And, you know, like, you were for probably afraid to hurt Colby, but it's like you wanted to be free. Um, and then you have all this notoriety, but no one really knows who you are. That's a lot to deal with. That really is, especially in the public it's eye Im- like that. Yeah, it's, it's imposter syndrome. I was writing about it, though. Art really helped, you know. Um, songs like The Lover After Me. Uh, on affirmation, I, I'm singing about that. I say, um, you know, um, um, so I, there's a line and I say, wow, this is my new freedom. Um, uh, I can't remember the lines that come after. I'm sure my fans remember. But so this is my new freedom. You know, essentially, it's nothing like I thought it would be. And all I want to do is just come back to you. I just... You know, songs like um, um, I Don't Know You Anymore. She was such an amazing woman because she had the compassion and the self-sacrifice to let me go, to say to me, I love you so much, but you have to go. You you know, and and we separated and we loved each other. Wow. You know, she knew. Oh, so that's what I was going to ask you. So she did know. Or you told her at a certain point. Oh, I came out. I came out to her and my whole family without ever ever holding a boy's hand. You know, it was, um, you know, I had told this story in the press before, but basically what had happened was during the recording of the first Savage Garden record, I'd wandered into a porn cinema and um, almost in almost like uh, I was in a daze because around that time they, the, you know, the budget for recording that record was so cheap. They put us in a really seedy area where there were a lot of like sex stores and adult toy stores and like sex cinemas and, uh, or porn cinemas and stuff. And there were a lot of free magazines. And that's the first time I ever saw gay porn was just in these free street magazines. Wow. Interesting. <laughs> And I remember picking them up like some Puritan. Yeah. (laughs) Just, you know, equal parts horrified, but also titillated. And then I remember just feeling like I was cheating, but I went into uh, a cinema and saw for the first time what two men having sex looked like. And I ran out of there, and this might seem hilarious to some people, but it is, I can kind of laugh about it now, but I ran and called, like, a, a mental health helpline. And 
I called and luckily I had someone with a great sense of humor, someone very, <laughs> someone gay and someone very blunt. And um, I called Lifeline in Australia and I said, I don't know what to do. I'm a married man and I've just, I've just walked into a gay cinema and I liked what I saw and I think I might be gay and I don't know what to do. And the person on the other line just said, oh, honey, you're gay. <laughs> <laughs> you need to go home and tell your wife you're gay. And that was the unraveling of my life. And I was devastated, but I did. And I went home and I told my wife what happened. And the short story is she was very, very amazing about it. You know, it, it was a long journey to us separating, but ultimately it led to her saying to me, you have to go and we have to separate. And that song I was telling you about, I Don't Know You Anymore, is six months into our separation where we had agreed not to talk. I uh, couldn't hold my end of the bargain and I had called her. Oh, wow. Even though I told. Yeah, her, even though you I made begged, that agreement, yeah. And I begged her to come back. You know, like, how crazy was that, you know? I had a boyfriend at the time and I was willing to leave him. And I was like, please just let me come back. And um, she was strong enough and loving enough to say, I can't, you can't. And then you're going to get through this, and one day you will be okay. Wow! One day you will get through this. That's so. She knew since the first record because that's when this happened when you were recording it. Yeah. So, and then af after you told her, did you guys try to make it work, or did you just agree to stay married and try to be friends? Like, um, how how after, were those? After I after I told her, we went to marriage counseling, and it was horrific because it was uh, neither of us are Christians; we're atheists. And because I was a famous person, um, we went to an anonymous uh, free service that was faith-based. Okay. Can you imagine how this went? <gasps> I, I feel like it probably, you were already probably feeling like so like mind-fucked because of everything that this just probably made it worse. Because it just feels like there's so many variables involved, but do tell. <laughs> Yeah, so the the faith-based minister said right off the bat, too bad, you made a vow. You made a vow with God. And also, it doesn't matter what you're attracted to. Um, and he made the analogy between me being attracted to men to him being attracted to Pamela Anderson. <laughs> and he said... I am attracted to Pamela Anderson and newsflash, my wife does not look like her. So, but I'm still married to my wife and you might be attracted to men, but you made a commitment to your wife and you have to stick to it. And that led to the beginning of my suicidal ideations. Wow. Well, I mean, mm -hmm. I could understand that entirely because it just seemed... Like, you you just can't catch a break as I'm following the story because between what you grew up with and then you find solace with Colby, but then you realize you're gay and then you have someone, like, basically, like, making you feel even worse about yourself. That is so much to handle. Yeah. And then you, you, there's just so many layers of that, too, because then I have these beautiful fans, right? And what I connect with with women, and this is what I think is so sacred about gay men and women as well, which I love so much. 
I love that gay men have no agenda with women, right? Yeah. And there's a sacred, there's a sacred thing that happens with teen, teen idols and young girls too. And I would love to have done a thesis on this because I think there's a, a window that happens where because the world in general is such a patriarchy and because there is so much fucking misogyny and young women are innately aware of that inherent violence, I think, in some forms of masculinity and and male gaze, that the ambiguous androgynous pop star is their first and sacred opportunity to have a relationship with a man that's safe and devoid of that. And that was my... That was my solace at that time as well because my fans had two people to choose from. They had this beautiful, cisgendered, straight, blonde, what I consider to be the beauty standard in Daniel. Okay. And then there was me. And then there was me. And the ones that chose me meant a lot to me because I identified with these women these women also felt like they didn't fit the beauty standard. These women were going through all of the stuff that teenagers go through, right? So the body dysmorphia. Um, back then, w- Billie Eilish, I'm sure, is, is this for her fans as well and related to her fans. But back then, I was experiencing a lot of that sort of self-doubt and self-hatred as well. But because a lot of my fans were younger and female, you know, they're going through the objectification of the body, but I didn't objectify them. And we had this, I mean, I don't know, I'd love to hear from my audience, but I felt like we shared this unspoken agreement. And I used to speak to my audience a lot about this, that, you know, you're loved just just for who you are because I, I needed to be loved for who I was. And so they made me feel understood. And I felt that, but there was... There was also a fear of imposter syndrome, you know, because if there was attention coming toward me, which was this sort of like, oh, you're a heterosexual male and I want to, I want to fuck you in that kind of way. I would always feel like I was letting people down, you know? I see. Yeah, no, yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And and, And there was a fear that there was something about me that was repulsive and that comes from all the way back to you know maybe childhood. The record company tre- yeah. childhood and the way the record company treated me and the way um uh, you know there's a, an amazing book the velvet rage which talks about how from a very young age children know that their parents know that they're gay because there's this subconscious especially with a father there's this subconscious feeling that if a father knows they can't verbalize it but that there's something different about this particular child and uh, a mother sort of well my mother certainly did um senses this this um eventual severance that's going to happen which is that the father will not know how to relate to this child maybe and so might pull away and to a child a child only needs two things they need um, basic safety and, and sustenance, so food and just, uh, you know, safety. But they also need love. And 
the thing that a child fears more than death is the severance of love from a parent. And so for a child to sense that a parent might be pulling away is akin to death. Mm. And so for a child like I was to sense there's something in me that my father doesn't love. Yeah, that's heavy. That's heavy. Very heavy. And I carried that my whole life and to the point that even if my audience, who I now realize, um, you know, just loved me anyway, loved me for who I was, I feared that if they really knew who I was, they would be repulsed by me. Wow. Wow. So that, and then that probably encouraged you to like suppress it more. I think to suppress it subconsciously and to hate myself. Yes. And so I never really felt beautiful. I never felt attractive. I never felt um, lovable. And then that affected all the relationships I had with everyone. You know, I could never really be with anyone or I could only ever be with people that wanted to be with someone that hated themselves because I hated myself. So it's, it was just, um, you know, that's why it's a miracle to be here today, to have this record, to, to, uh, to live in a world where it's possible to just be myself and be me and, um, I don't know, to, and <laughs> to exist. And it's just such, and I think the good thing is like, it just is such a different time period now. I just feel like all things like gay are much more mainstream now. Because, like, I came out in uh, late 2009, um, uh, basically 2010, and that was, what, 12, 13 years ago? And I just feel like it's a completely world now than it was then. So I can, mm. I can only imagine, you know, coming out when you came out, which was even, it, you know, before I did. So it's just I just feel like the world has changed so much over the past 2010 years in a good way as far as gay is concerned. Yeah. At yeah, least and, you know, I've, I've spoken frankly about the fact that, you know, uh, young people will be like, like, big deal, like, and, or like, really, that happened to you? You know, like, I love, um, I love the, where um, we are in terms of pop stars now, you know. Yes, um, yeah, definitely. Ollie Alexander exists, fully formed, blooming, just boom, I'm here. Sam Smith is so happy and joyful. Kim Petrus, I'm obsessed with her, right? So I've mentioned three artists that run the gamut of the spectrum of all of the anachronisms that we use to describe what being queer is or however we are, right? Which is really just describing humanity, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like, you know, and that should be no big deal. That's just like who we are and, 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 what, and, and what we are. But I grew up in an era where I didn't even know if George Michael was gay. For real. Like, I didn't know until poor George was arrested for having sex. I remember that, too. I remember seeing... Actually, I remember that vividly because they were talking about it on Oprah and my mother used to always watch Oprah and I was like, oh. <laughs> I know. You know, it's and it's just like it, it was such a different world then because... 
I didn't have anyone that had trodden that path or done anything. Like, I live in a world where I actually married my husband and I was married when I attended Elton John's wedding. Wow. Now, think about that. I got married before Elton John did. (laughs) Yeah. So... You know, not legally, because Elton was the first person in the UK to be issued, and I'm going to take the piss out of this, to be issued the certificate, which feels like going to get a license for your dog. Like, that's how insulting I think the whole thing was. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, a civil partnership uh, certificate or whatever we want to call it. It's just just the meaning. It's just the meaning, civil partnership. So demeaning. So demeaning. But I, I went and got one, but... The year before that, Richard and I had our marriage and it was a traditional, amazing marriage and catering and a cake and all those things and all that stuff. But, you know, we decided to get married because of what that meant significantly in a community, what it means to stand before your mother and your siblings and nieces and nephews and to to declare to the people that you love and ask them, hey, will you support this union? We need you to. You know, that's what it meant, right? And then a year later, we were, quote, unquote, eligible for the certificate. So we went and got that. But we attended Elton's wedding, married. And that's that's what I mean about how far the world has come. Now we've, um, well, we've been married three times. There was our wedding, then there was our civil partnership. And then when we came to the US, we were officially married. And, you know, we do that for civil rights we do that to say thank you to everyone that has come before us and who fought for our right to be acknowledged and to exist but yeah that's the world that we exist in now which bizarrely has taken this weird twist where Ron DeSantis just wants to beat up on trans kids and we want to close a library because it has a gay book in it like (laughs) what the fuck but I mean, I mean, I'm almost tempted to ask about Elton's wedding because I didn't realize you were there. Um, are you? I don't want to get off subject a bit, but are you and Elton uh, good friends? No, but we're friendly. I mean, Elton is literally everything he he appears to be on paper. He is just a patron, and he's a saint. Now, I've never had addiction, but I had a war with a record label and he just stepped in. Elton, out of the blue, called up. I don't know how he got my phone number and he just called up one day when I made that album, The Tension and the Spark, and it was being uh, shelved at Columbia Records and he called me up to tell me how much he loved it and that it was brilliant and that I should come and see him in Las Vegas. And... I was just so moved by that. And so I got on a plane to Las Vegas and I went and saw his show. And then I remember going backstage and he stopped the room and said, everybody, I want you to meet Darren Hayes. He's just made this brilliant record and he made everyone listen to this lecture about it. Now, they probably didn't give a shit, but he treated me like I was Picasso. And he he talked about my album in front of all these people backstage and then remembered me and then 
I'd been to his white tie and tiara ball a few the few times that I could afford to buy a ticket to that show. It's that event. It's very expensive and beautiful and worth every penny because it's it's to raise money for HIV research. And um, when he married David, I got an invitation, and I got to tell you, he was this. He and David stood in a reception line. There is no handler that stands next to Elton whispering in his ear like presidents have. Yeah. Elton remembers everybody. And we stood there in line. And uh, as we approached, it was he who whispered into David's ear to tell David who we were. And then he said, David, this is Darren. This is his husband, Richard. Darren's the person who made that album that I love, remember? And he, like, that's how classy this man is. Oh, that's beautiful. I mean, that entire story is beautiful because... I know you separated from Columbia Records right after the tension and the spark, and it's pretty obvious why, because they were trying to really, like, you know, hush you and, like, shelve your music. So I'm glad I'm glad you um, started your own record label after that, which I want to get into. But that, yeah. it's, it's amazing that you were probably feeling so beat down by Columbia Records and for Elton to just go out of his way to, like, pay homage to you. And, you know, to showcase how much he admired that album, that had to have meant the world to you. It really did. And it was, you know, for someone in his position who doesn't have to do that kind of thing, it just gave me that uh, affirmation that I needed to keep going and keep being an artist. And to remember that a career is a, a marathon. It really is a marathon and to keep going. The other person that reminded me of that was, was Olivia Newton-John recently, you know, just her passing really devastated me. But in looking back over her career, I I just realized it's not all smooth sailing and I'm going to be here forever until I die. And who knows what's going to happen, you know? Yeah, true. And and that's what it is. You know, I'm, I'm an artist. I'm not just a fad or a flash in the pan. I'm an artist and I'm proud of what I do and sometimes it's going to flop, sometimes it's not, sometimes it's going to be a commercial success, sometimes it isn't. But I, no one can ever take away from the fact that I sing and I write my songs and, and I'm an artist, and he reminded me of that. That's beautiful, because that was such a trying time for you. How were you, was it easy to get out of Columbia Records, or did you have to wait until the contract expired? And how was it uh, starting your own independent record label, Powdered Sugar? I'll tell you what was real easy. Here's what you do. (laughs) Uh, Every record, uh, it has an option, right? So they they have an option period where they get to tell you uh, whether or not they're going to pick up the option for the next album. And I had been signed, uh, luckily, when Daniel left uh, the band, they had agreed to just let the same contract play out for me. It was a six album deal. Okay. And so we delivered two. Uh, so then spin and the tension and the spark was two more. I had two more albums to deliver to them plus the plus a best of. So, uh, after the tension and the spark, there was a best of that we gave them. I wrote two songs for that best of. And, um, then, um, I'm just trying to think of what happened. Oh, so when I made The Tension and the Spark, they hated it. And they said, uh, do you have any other singles up your sleeve? So I said, sure. 
and I wrote them a song called Shit on the Radio. <laughs> and I gave it to them, and the chorus was... Um, well, the verses says, so much shit on the radio. I could close my eyes to the music, but there ain't no, uh, there ain't no radio on or something like that. And I was like, Kylie Minogue won't take my calls. I need to sell a few more records. My friend Matt just wrote the hook you hear in a few more seconds. And it was just all about there being shit on the radio. And they very politely wrote back and said, because they didn't want to release Popular, right? The single. Yes. And they wrote back and went, okay, we get it. Uh, you're not gonna release. You're not gonna write another single. We we get it. Um, we're not gonna release this. So when the time came for them to pick up the option, they just politely chose not to pick up the option, which is what I wanted, because what it meant was I had to have crow on my face and say, "Ooh, I got dropped from a record label," but that was so much better than going to war with them, because what could have happened was they could have said make a record and I could have made a record and they could have said, hmm, not commercial enough, make another one. They could have kept me in limbo forever. Yeah. Thank, thank God I wrote shit on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) It was your lifesaver. But I knew that. I was ready to, um, I was ready to uh, deliver an album full of like karmic tantric sex chants if I had to. Um, and then that song ended up becoming a side project that, that Robert Conley and I called We Are Smug, but, uh, which was a joke in itself. (laughs) Uh, uh, But no, that was easy. I didn't intend to be, uh, um, uh, uh, my own label. I started to make my next record and it was, uh, during a honeymoon period with Richard where we were just so in love and I bought a, a Fairlight synthesizer and I don't know, I was just in this wonderful creative period where I just had no artistic boundaries whatsoever. And I just thought, do I want to go up against another another label that's going to tell me, you know, look, no one was going to sign a double album, half of which was a concept record about time travel, going back in time to fix my childhood. And I just didn't want to have that battle. And I just thought, I'll put this one out on my own. And that's where Powder Sugar began. I just decided I didn't, I didn't even try to get a record deal. And to this day, I've never tried. The next record after that was um, uh, Secret Codes and Battleships. And I did a, a sort of a hybrid deal. I put it out on my own label in Europe and I used... Uh, uh, I used distribution um, for that. And then in Australia, I signed a limited term deal with, um, uh, uh, I forget the label. (laughs) No, it was a major label. Um, But everything was all on my terms. Um, So they didn't get a lot of money from me and I didn't take any uh, real money from them. And so uh, it suited me best, and I got the masters back. I owned the masters. Oh, that's and good. That's important. Very important to me. Yeah. So I, it's always been that. I'll, I'll always be powdered sugar. I can't imagine not. I don't know because it's it's a real deal. You you, you make a record, and they own everything. They own t-shirts. They own part of your touring. That's what a record deal is these days. And 
you know, unless I am making a two-minute TikTok song, um, no one's really interested in signing me, and I'm not really interested in making a TikTok a, a TikTok record. So, I don't know. I'm not the easiest person to sign. Is the, is the short answer to that question? Well, I mean, it's good at least. I mean, you've been in the game a long time, so it's, you don't even need like a big record label behind you at this point. No, I do it all myself anyway. I mean, I honestly, at the moment, I'm managing myself. I, it, I'm once one one person joked and said, "You're you're at this point impossible to manage because <laughs> you know I have independent publicists, I have independent um, uh, everyone, you know, pluggers. I have." Um, people that I just adore that I work with, you know, and I, I, um, even when it comes to, you know, touring, you know, I can make those phone calls on my own, you know, I just call up, I'm with CAA, I just call up Live Nation and it's like, hey, I want to do some shows in North America and they're like, cool, let's do it. It's, it's, I have that ability and I can cut out the middleman. What I don't have is 2023's version of Payola, and that is, yes. um, and really that's just leverage. So the way that works is, for example, um, if I'd wanted to get my records played on the radio, first of all, I would have made five, six minute records. Number one, I really should have made three minute, two and a half minute songs, but just say I had, and I wanted to get say, let's try being in love on the radio. Well, first of all, a manager and a record label would have said, well, let's get a two and a half, three minute version of that. And then they would, I would be signed to a major label and a major publisher, like, and a major uh, manager that had, say, Christina Aguilera and Michael Bublé as clients. And they would go to uh, a major radio network and they would say, we need you to play the new single from Darren Hayes. And they would say, who is that? And they would say, ha, 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 funny joke. Here's the thing. Do you want Michael Bublé to play your jingle ball? And they would go, of course we do. And then they would say, then you're going to play this new single from Darren Hayes. And they would go, ah, yes, we will. That's the way the music industry works today. Yes, yes. It's like, I worked, so I worked in radio for 10 years. I worked in Top 40 Radio and um, Adult Contemporary Radio in New York and New Jersey at different, like, big radio stations around here. So I know you're talking, yeah, exactly. It's like, Oh, there's still payola, but it's sort of evolved into like a almost like a barter deal situation. It is. Where it's like Yeah, it's like look Yes. Come on guys, we've got four artists on our roster that you you want you were playing for you at this thing and or we're doing a blah 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 blah. It's like I don't want to have to pull them, but you're gonna play this new artist for me. It's like oh, okay, yes we are. Well I have no leverage. Mm. And it's just the way it is. Yeah, no, I you get know? that. I a hundred percent get that. Yeah, but also, I'm going to say something something controversial that a lot of people won't necessarily like or will um, be shocked that I'll, I'll admit to. I think it's wrong, but I understand that pop radio is youth-based and I make pop music. So, unfortunately, I know... Not only am I competing with the thousands of records that get released every week, but I'm competing with uh, Camilla. I'm competing with um, uh, Little Nas X. I'm competing with um, 
whoever's the Harry, whoever's you know the hottest youngest artists who are just slamming out hits that are that are just getting all the numbers on social media and whatever, and they're doing all that work before it ever gets to a program director. So why would radio play a fifty-year-old me? You know, it doesn't mean it's fair. It it has nothing to do with how good the music is. It's just what what the the name of the game is, and it's it sucks. I hate that there's an expiration date on talent, but I look at somebody that I adore like Madonna. US radio does not play new Madonna singles. Am I yeah. wrong about this? No, you're so right. It's like they'll, like, certain stations will still, like, your adult contemporary stations will replay all her old hits all throughout the yeah. day, but the pop station, the top 41, will not pay her, her new single. Even if she's on a sold-out tour, maybe they'll mm-hmm. give tickets away. But yet they won't play the new material at all. It, it, it's, it's, right. it's just... And, and as a Madonna fan, that's frustrating to me because honestly, I am I'm such a big fan. And Madonna to me, what I love about her is she refuses to repeat herself. And she's always making contemporary records. If, I think if you go back and listen to... Um, music as an album that forever changed uh, pop music for the next five years after it. If you listen to uh, Ray of Light, for example, what that did for for pop music, and both of those albums came out in periods when people said she was was quote-unquote over. Um, If I listen to, I'm just trying to think of my last favourite Madonna, oh my God, Confessions on a Dance Floor, you know, and then everything after that became pop music and it still sounds like uh you know like uh, uh you know the korean pop obsession or edm music or whatever like it or, or our obsession with disco music today or, or whatever like that was a, a seminal record that greatly impacted and influenced music a decade later she still is a pioneer she doesn't get the respect that she deserves, but that's ageism. That's misogyny. That is what it is. It is. It it's, it's, it's unfortunate I it. too. I mean, it's unfortunate because if it's happening to someone of her stature, that means it's happening to, you know, every normal, you know, woman <laughs> or any, any normal yes. person that, that reaches a certain age point. Really? Do we think it happens to straight men? I don't know yet. Like, um, I do. I, I, I genuinely, I do I feel know. like is it, that, I feel like yeah. it does in the corporate workspace. I feel right. like it does. I feel like like once you get to like a certain point or a certain age and you've been with a company x amount of years, they're going to want to re- they're going they'll want to replace you with someone who's younger and more naive and willing to do more work for less without realizing it. Ooh. I've seen that happen so much with music writers that I adore and we don't need to mention names, but I know like with all the music magazines and and, uh, fashion magazines and just great editorial stuff and people that have that knowledge, you know, they have that back, that back catalog knowledge that now I'm not saying that there's not room for, for young blood and young writers. And that's so important to have emergent writers and people that really understand you need everyone from every generation, people to come up and really understand, because look, I fully admit, you know, I'm the person that does not understand, um, 
uh, I don't know, like, like I can't get my head around TikTok. I get it. But I'm never going to be one of those cynical artists that will say things like, well, there's nothing good on the radio. There's always something good on the radio, right? So you need a young writer and staff that understand what's happening. But when you age people out of these especially at magazines and digitally and, uh, you know, with social media, you, you're aging senior writers out of positions. It really is a loss of culture. That's sad to me. Yeah, it, it, it is sad, but I feel it, it, ha- it's, it happens. I feel like this is a topic that doesn't yeah. even get that much attention to, like, um, you know, like ageism, and it doesn't really get that much attention. And I feel like it's prevalent, mm-hmm. especially in the entertainment industry. Yeah, you're right. It's it's like that George Clooney film where we just send someone in to fire them. We just need <laughs> all those freaking fly miles. I'm getting off topic. But, uh, I mean, hey, I mean, it's one of the many issues that are going on. But you seem to have, you've navigated so much in your career. You kind of, like, dodged a lot of, like, bullets. And, you know, you're still going. So what are some of the themes on this album? Because it's your first album in 11 years and like, what could fans expect? Well, you know, it's funny. I noticed I read an interview with Tom Chaplin recently and I didn't realize he was talking about this as well. Um, I talk about midlife and I talk about it as it relates to, you know, being a gay man. I think that this album started with uh, a creeping realization that there was a a deep feeling of sadness in me and I didn't know where it came from. And part of it was a a deep sense of feeling invisible or that society was starting to tell me that I should be invisible. I know a lot of women will relate to this. Um, I know social media absolutely contributes to this feeling. But I noticed it with our obsession with documenting how we look and everything was looks-based and everything was um, use-based. And um, I, because I'd never had children and all of my friends around me started to have children and I do have a lot of straight friends, Richard and I were starting to feel like we still felt so young and yet... I was starting to feel like, what next? You know, and if I wasn't singing, who was I? You know, was I just defined by my job? And if I didn't have a job, what was my sense of legacy? What was going to happen next in the rest of my life? And was I supposed to just kind of curl up and disappear and become grey? And I don't mean, like my hair but I just mean in general like have the colour kind of just drain out of my world and part of seeing the movie Call Me By Your Name that's why that was such a um, a, uh, a catalyst really for like um, almost like it was a defibrillator for my soul and my heart because the film was so full of passion and it reminded me that I'd been feeling dead for a while just just disconnected and, and dead And um, so I started looking into that and I I realized that a lot of the the uncomfortableness and the the disconnect when when we reach sort of our midlife is because we're 
reaching the destination that the momentum of our whole life has taken us to. You know, mine was at 13, saw Michael Jackson in concert and decided, oh, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And it was a very handy way to escape, you know, like Dorothy clicking my heels. It was escaping, getting out of Dodge, you know, escaping to Oz, just riding this wave. But I speak about this on this song, Hey Matt. I use the metaphor of this wave that... A lot of our lives from youth through our 20s, through our 30s and 40s, we're on the top of this wave. But underneath, we're collecting all of this stuff that we're not acknowledging. It's in our subconscious, but it's there. And we think, I'll deal with that later. I'll deal with that later. I'll deal with that later. But what happened to me and what happens to a lot of us is that wave, it eventually lands on the shore that you're pointing toward. And when the ocean subsides, you're surrounded by all of the stuff that you didn't deal with. And I think that's where this record kind of starts off for me. That's where these themes are. That's what Let's Try Being In Love is about. The middle eight is me saying, what is this dichotomy of feeling that I have where I'm both unsatisfied and yet I'm yearning for passion? You know, I say, am I by your side? Am I on my own? Do I dare to speak? Will I die alone? Am I five decades or am I 24? Mm. Because I feel young still. And yet everything in me, when I look in the mirror, you know, stuff's starting to droop. The hairline's starting to recede. Um, like, like a puppy that you used to have that everyone would stop and say, oh my God, the puppy's so cute. Can I pat him? The puppy grows up and then people stop asking to, to pet the puppy. You know, that's what it feels like when you're uh, young and beautiful. You know, you, you think that you're always going to be young and beautiful and that that part of you is, is, is concrete. But no, that's just transient. That goes away. And the person that used to be able to swan to a room and have t heads turn and everything, you realize, oh, that, that was just youth. You know, and I was dealing with all of this trauma like we discussed before about how I'd never really experienced what it was like to love myself and be comfortable in my skin when I was at my most famous. Yeah. I'd never really dealt with my internalized homophobia. Um, there was all of this stuff that was unhealed from childhood. So I talk about that. Songs like uh, Music Video, you know, it's about being policed for who I was as a child by the people that were supposed to take care of me and how all I wanted to do was escape into a music video. Songs like Hey Matt, that song is, well, it's a voicemail that I wanted to leave for a friend but I didn't have the guts to. So instead I, I recorded a voice note and it's some of the most deeply psycho, deeply psychosomatic, psychosexual, psychosocial thoughts that I dare not speak, but I decided to record them one night and, and pour them all out and compare my life to this sort of like car crash on the 405 and me in a dream just walking through the debris and deciding which parts of this car crash I'm going to pick up and try to fix and which I'm not. Um, there are... I'm talking about... Um, my trauma, trauma.
traits and behaviors. At the same time, I'm revisiting what it would be like if I had uh, a summer and uh, a youth where I was in love with um, boys and it was okay. You know, what would it have been like to have been, um, to, to revisit the, 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 the summer of love as a, you know, uh, as, as Elio, you know, a, a kid that had a dad that loved him, you know, what would that have been like to have, to have experienced love and to feel good about being gay. So homosexual is all about that, you know? Um, so there's redemption and there's, um, forgiveness and ultimately it's a journey out of this really sad period of my life into, into ecstasy, actually into, into real ecstasy and the very end of the record, it's back masked and it's in secret and people will have to do a little bit of work to find it, but there's a, there's a real message at the end of the record that, that I want to leave people with and they have to, it's a puzzle and they have to work it out. I have to commend you. It sounds like a really introspective record, probably your deepest yet. And I think there's a lot of material that people could relate to. So I'm really looking forward to it. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I, it's funny because it's a bit of a, bit of a Trojan horse because I led off with singles that were very up-tempo because I was so exhausted by the sadness that I felt going into it. And it was such a beautiful journey knowing that just accessing music and reconnecting with the studio and reconnecting with my youth and Shet Pettibone and 12-inch mixes and all of those drum machines and things that I loved as a kid, that that euphoria would make its way out and that's where I ended up on the record but I, I, I wanted to start it there that we'd come out of this awful period of Donald Trump and this awful period of um, COVID that we're kind of still in but I didn't want to contribute more drudge to the world but my audience knows that I don't shy away from that stuff and so a lot of that stuff is the journey that's on the record and I wanted to leave some of that for people to experience and and vent with and through. And I hope even though it's personal, with all of my records, it has to be real to me, otherwise I can't sing it. But it is open-ended. And I want people to find themselves in it. And in the same way that I said, even, you know, I think a lot of women will relate to my feeling of feeling invisible. Yes. Um, I I want people to you know like even like the the song homosexual. It's not about sex, and people will get that once they listen to the record. You know, it's about self acceptance and it's about love. Um, so yeah, thank you for saying that. No, of course, of course, and I- I'm excited for this record. And I know you recently announced tour dates in the UK and in Australia, but are you going to come to the states too? Yes. Uh, Friday, it gets revealed. It's just a handful of shows. It's just three dates. Um, it's just Toronto, LA, and New York at this stage. Nice. And okay, I, perfect. I know, and I'm just so grateful because my US and North American fans have just been so patient, and I should call it the apology tour <laughs> <laughs> because these people have spent money and got on planes and seen me all around the world and 
I've been joking about this in all my interviews, but also I have friends now for 10 years that are just like, are you really a singer? You know, like, <laughs> I, I want some of my friends to be able to come to a show and just see what I actually do, see that it's magic and see this connection. And, and I, I have a sacred connection to my audience and I've missed it. And uh, it's going to be incredible. So if you are anywhere near any of those shows, please just ask Nick. It'd be my pleasure to give you a couple of tickets and have you come along. It'd be lovely. Yeah, I live outside of the... I live in the suburbs in New Jersey, but New York would, is the closest show. So I would definitely love to come to that show. Hey, listen, New Jersey rocks. So I did my photo shoot, album shoot, uh, photo shoot in the suburbs of New Jersey. So don't you... Uh, don't you even hint that Jersey isn't cool. I would live in Jersey if I lived in New York. I couldn't handle, man, I don't know. Even Brooklyn's like, uh, Brooklyn's amazing, but it's just, oh, so crowded. So yeah. Jersey's beautiful. It's leafy and green. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I like it because it's, I could go to the city because I was, I was actually in the city on Sunday because I saw Lizzo at the garden, but I could never live in the city because it's just too, it's too much. Look, <laughs> I get it. I lived there for about a year and I just about wanted to, yeah. And it was hard for me, but it's so exciting. It's like an amazing city. Even in London, when we lived in London, um, we theoretically had the perfect life. We lived in Notting Hill. You know, oh, we nice. lived in this fancy house and everything like that. It was, we were miserable when we lived there. It was just like, I felt like every day I walked out of my house, I was living in retail. It was just like <laughs> you're always in a, in a store and you're always like joining uh, a queue. You're like an ant, and, and everyone's always like, keep up. You know, I remember my family came to visit me once, and my sister had two young toddlers, and uh, someone like swore at them. They're like, get out of the fucking way. And I was just like, oh my God, you know. And we ended up moving south of the river to this place called Clapham, and everyone laughed at us. Everyone just thought we were just so uncool because we lived in the suburbs, and I was so happy. We lived near a park. We could walk to a grocery store. We had a dog. It was awesome. So I get it. Anyway, I'm rambling at you. Thank you for being so lovely. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. I, this is such a good interview. Like I wasn't, sh I had like my questions, but the, w the direction that we went in, I feel like it's so much better. And I, and thanks for opening up to me too. Cause you've just, I have like an all new respect for you because I knew you had like a, a crazy life and you've been through a lot of high and lows, but I didn't know all this detail. So like uh, kudos, honestly. Oh, it's a pleasure. I don't know. It gets easier as you get older. You'll, you'll get there. Just enjoy being young and beautiful and try not to be traumatized. That's my advice. <laughs> <laughs> but you real, I would suggest like you need to like do a book or something. Well, that's coming. So it's weird that you should say that, but that's, that's, Oh, is is it? I'm I'm a little bit intuitive. So is it because you have a lot of material to work with? I think like if you did a book, it would like really take off. Yeah, I'm ready now. I, I started a book uh, ten years ago, and it was just too sad. It was just it was just a book of sadness. <laughs> did you ever see the movie Bridesmaids? Yes, I did. That it's hysterical. Yes. So it was like that diary. There's a line there when um, Rebel Wilson goes. Was it your diary? I'm sorry. I thought it was just a very, very sad book. <laughs> um, but uh, when I first started writing, um, I realized that I was just in the thick of sadness and 
there wasn't this act. I didn't realize that this had to happen. I had to go away for 10 years and experience life. There's a bunch of things I did that I didn't get to tell you. One of the things I did in 10 years was I went to the Grandling School for three years and studied improv comedy and made friends. And one of my friends had a baby and I was the godfather of that child I am. And she's five now. And I got uh, one day a week, I babysat her. So I essentially got to sort of co-parent a child for five years. And so I just had all these really beautiful things happened to me that I got to heal a lot of those wounds, you know, like I got to see, I got to treat a child the way that I wish that I could have been treated as I got to be a dad to someone. And, um, yeah, so it's just, I have, I have, um, more of a balanced story to tell now. I have it. I have a third act, I think is, is the way to put it. So, but yeah, you are a bit intuitive. So, um, yeah. I might call you up next time I want to either um, get a new haircut or buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> yeah, definitely let me, know. <laughs> let me know. I'm into astrology and all of that. I've always... Me too! Okay, what's your star sign? I'm going to try and guess it. Okay, guess. Oh, God. You might be a Gemini, but you feel like a Pisces, but you could be a Gemini. What are you? Correct, Pisces. Pisces. Oh! See, I'm good at this too. I'm you, a Taurus. You are really good. I love Tauruses. I feel like I like half the people in my life are fucking Tauruses. Like my mother's a Taurus. Knew it. Coworkers, my, one of my best friends. Like I know a lot of Tauruses. Yep, you're magical. That's what it is because you're so in touch with like the feelings. They're like oxygen to you. Like you breathe in emotions. That's what the thing is. But I got to say, you feel very. Um, Because I love this about um, Pisces. Pisces sometimes feel so like litmus paper and delicate and understandably like the weight of everyone's feelings sometimes can feel like so exhausting. Um, But you feel very resilient. Uh, Do you feel like you are a resilient person? Yeah, I do. I've had like a crazy life. I mean, I have like, I talk about it on the podcast because in the magazine, like I never talk about myself. I'm always writing about other people. But like on in my podcast, the way it's structured is like I do the interviews like this will be chopped down into like an interview. And then I have a recap portion. And in the recap, I get into my life. So I've had I've had a fucking crazy life, to say the least. (laughs) Listen, I got to I got to listen to your podcast and stuff and plug it. Can you? DM me so that I actually have your details and stuff and so I can make sure I follow you and stuff. But now I need to listen to your uh, podcast because it sounds fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, I love that. And we should totally like, I mean, you're probably busy. I was going to say we could hang, we should hang out in New York, but you're probably busy. But I would definitely love to meet you the night of the show. I don't have a lot going on. Trust me. There's only three shows, so I'm probably sure I'm I'm into it. So (laughs) let's do it. Definitely. Okay. Um, yes. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much. I'll DM you and follow, and you know we'll we'll talk for sure. So thanks for joining me today, and I'll tag you on everything when it's released. Love it. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Definitely. You too. Thanks so much. Bye. 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 Cheers to Darren Hayes of Savage Garden and his sold out show at Town Hall, which we just saw. It's the end of April, and his tour is in the process of wrapping up, and it was a world tour, celebrating 25 years of Savage Garden, solo hits, and more, and I'm here at Lance. We got to meet Darren that night. After Such an amazing experience. 
Yeah, it really was. It really was. What did you think of him? Because I know you've been a fan since when? Since childhood, right? I've definitely been a fan since, you know, 99, 2000, when, (laughs) you know, they were huge. Um, And then more recently, a fan of Darren Hayes and his solo career and what an inspiration he's been and how he's been um, so wonderful toward the gay community and his story that's just so inspirational to all of us. Um, So it was really a great experience meeting him. He's such a sweetheart and the performance was just excellent. It really was. And it was sold out. And I just couldn't believe how many diehards he had there. I feel like most of the people at the venue were standing up throughout the entire show. I mean, we basically were. And it was just the energy there was incredible because we go to a lot of shows And sometimes, even if an artist is great, their fans may be a little bit more, like, low-key. But no, here, everyone was standing up. The vibe, it was a vibe. It really was. It was really a great environment, and it was so wonderful to be there. And thank you, Darren and Will, for the opportunity to go to the show. Oh, you're welcome. It was great. It all stemmed from, so... I did a cover story for Out in Jersey Magazine on Darren. Um, It was the New Year issue. And he came on the podcast as well, which obviously this is the recap for. And once we got to meet him, he was so sweet and gracious, which is what I liked. You know, I gave him copies of the magazine. He signed one for me. We took pictures together. We were talking about it. He was so gracious and and appreciative, which I liked, you know, the fact that he's so successful and he's very wealthy because Savage Garden sold, I think, 23 million albums worldwide. And then he has all his own solo stuff. So to still be so humble and grateful, I thought that was really um, admirable. Such a sweetheart, really. And he looks good for his age. Like he stays in in shape. His hair, he has all of that hair. He just turned 50. So happy birthday, Darren. Yeah, happy birthday, Darren. That was fun. That was a fun night. And we got to go to Soundcheck, which was pretty cool because I feel like he has a little bit of a comedic nature to him. Like I could picture him doing stand up at some point because he was pretty funny with some of those uh, jokes. Like I think I'm going to post a clip, but the one about the boyfriend dick. Oh my gosh, yes. You have to see this on that Instagram. I think Will posted it or he will. Cool. Yeah, I added it to my stories that people were like, you know, adding like the laugh emoji. Yeah. That shit was funny. Um, I yes, want... I have it on my Instagram too. You won't want to miss that. It was hysterical. I'm like wondering for a moment. I'm like, should I pull it up and play it here for people to hear? <laughs> he was also telling us about his boyfriend from Brooklyn. Yeah. Ex- excuse me. His ex-boyfriend from Brooklyn who um, was, I believe, a parole officer yes, or a corrections officer. A corrections officer, that's Corrections what officer, and he would um, come home with handcuffs. <laughs> <laughs> now that's hot. I think that's hot. You get into like the whole like role-playing aspect to it. I wish all artists were this down-to-earth where they would tell you about their sex life. <laughs> I know, yeah, about the kinks and all the crazy fucking shit they're into, I know. I'm still trying to find out about the handkerchief. Oh, yeah. So Lance had sent me a, a picture of Darren performing and I was looking at it and he was like, is that like a handkerchief or what did you think it was? I couldn't tell if it was a handkerchief or a map of the stage, but yeah, I prefer to think of it as a handkerchief. Well, I stared in, I, I like zoomed in and I was like, that does not look like a map. I'm like, if anything, it looks like a bandana or like a handkerchief. But you were saying apparently that has like meaning to it. Yeah. So for those of you who are not familiar, who are maybe younger gays or 
heterosexual or whatever sexual. Um, You might not be familiar, but back in the day, there was a handkerchief code for gays that would um, be a signal to other people that you were gay and open for sex. And based on the color of the handkerchief and which pocket you put it in, it would tell other people what you were into and if you were a top or a bottom. Okay. Now... This is pretty interesting, but it seems like so intricate and detailed. So I gathered the yellow handkerchief if you're into some really kinky shit. Now, what did, what were you wondering if it meant? Oh, no. Yeah, no. You can look this up on Wikipedia. (laughs) There's a whole article on it called handkerchief, uh, handkerchief code, I believe. Okay. Something like that. And um, the yellow one is indicative that you're into uh, water sports. (laughs) That is some funny shit. You should message Darren and ask. A little bit ballsy. We'll try to get an answer. (laughs) A little bit ballsy. We might have to report on that on a future podcast. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That is some funny fucking shit. But I know if you weren't going on vacation this weekend, I would go. I would go see him in D.C. Yes, he is performing in D.C. on the 24th of April at the 6th and I Synagogue, which is not really a synagogue, although maybe it is. I don't know. Who the fuck knows? I mean, at one point, it was definitely a synagogue. And I've seen shows there. Like, I've, I saw Imogen Heap there. Oh, I used to um, love... What was that? That song? It's still one of my favorites till this day. Hide and Seek. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. I'm going to listen to that. But anyway, yeah, home. it's a really, really cool venue. And it has, like, you know, um, synagogue-type acoustics. So if you're in D.C. or planning a trip... This time of year is beautiful in D.C., so you should definitely go. It's a good excuse to see Darren. I would be going, but I already have plans that day. <laughs> but speaking of concerts, I was going to say speaking of D.C., but I forgot, uh, lost that thought. But speaking of concerts, this is the best time of year because now we're really kicking in the concert season because now all the, the shows are coming up, coming up. Um, I was just, last night, I was with Margaret Cho. And I saw Margaret Shaw at the Wilma Theater in Montclair. And then I hung out with her backstage and her opening act, Daniel Webb, who's also gay. So it was cool that she had like an openly gay open act. So I was hanging out with them after the show. And guess what? This gets really funny. So the row that I'm sitting in, there's a guy to my right. And he keeps on looking at me. And I'm like, who the fuck is that? But I didn't want to look back because I I just, I don't know. I was weird and I had a bad night the night before, so I was in a mood. But then he approached me afterwards. He was also, he asked me if I was a comedian, I guess maybe because we were in a press row. But his name's Daniel Ryan Spaulding. And I was Sounds hot. Oh, shit. And he's like verified on Instagram and everything. So I was hanging out with those three last night. So that was fun. Um, But now we're really getting into concert season. And I love it because we have a ton of big acts touring this year. Who are you looking, besides Darren, who else are you looking forward to seeing? What shows? I know you mentioned All American Rejects to me. That's, yes. Yeah, so there are a lot of um, like pop rock acts and uh, touring that were popular years ago that are getting back together and going on tour for the first time in a million years. Of course, there's Blink-182. That's like a really big story. Yeah. Fall Out Boy. Yeah. Fall Out Boy um, is touring this summer for sure. Um, and your Andrew McMahon. Andrew McMahon. Yes, of course. He always puts on a great show. So we'll be talking about him in an- another podcast. Yes, we'll be talking about him in another episode. That was another great interview. But bringing it back to Darren, what was your favorite song he performed? 
So the best thing really sticks out in my head, probably because it was the last song. <laughs> so um, I had that song like stuck in my head and I was playing it on repeat for a while. Um, but I mean, he was really great with, with all the songs that he performed. Um, True Blue, um, the Madonna oh, cover that, that. Yeah. Um, faded into... I Know um, I Loved You. I Knew I Loved You. Before I Met You. Um, that was really excellent i mean that was the one thing about darren is um and we were so fortunate to be there for the sound check but um i really appreciated how he was making sure the sound was ultra super perfect because a lot of artists especially pop acts they just lip sync they They just stand there dancing to their track and you know that's about it but darren really sings and really brings his heart into it and of course he has an amazing voice so it was just such an amazing show yeah it really was and that was like such a peak when he did the true blue going into i knew i loved you before i met you that like please like the 90s kid and me the 90s baby hearing that song live which was always my favorite savage garden song almost but it also tied with truly madly deeply and it was great seeing him perform that too but i just loved everything i did So, cheers to Darren Hayes and an amazing experience. Cheers.